Grey's Anatomy, the most iconic binge-worthy drama, is back, along with answers to the biggest cliffhangers. Will Teddy survive? Will Joe and Link finally find happiness together? Meredith returns along with fan faves like Arizona. You can now stream every episode of Grey's ever on Hulu and new episodes next day. Watch the season premiere of Grey's Anatomy tonight at 9, 8 central on ABC and stream on Hulu. Atheists, agnostics, long-haired weirdos, short-haired weirdos, vandals, hooligans. The government hug the government love. The government hug the government love. The government hug the government love. Welcome to The Politics Guys, a place for bipartisan, rational, and civil debate on American politics and policy. I'm Northern Kentucky University political scientist Michael Baranowski. I'm joined today by my conservative counterpart, Cleveland area attorney and defender of freedom, Jay Carson, as well as in a special three-person episode, University of Northern Iowa political scientist Justin Holmes. And Jay and I are happy to have Justin on the show for his perspective, which I should point out is his alone and, you know, should in no way be taken to represent that of the University of Northern Iowa, the great state of Iowa, or I guess anyone other than, you know, Justin Holmes. Uh, Jay, I, I assume that that goes for you, too. You you speak for yourself. And yes, you yes. Know, as for me. I am the Lorax. I speak for the trees. So there you go. But uh, anyway, Justin, great to have you here. And I'm looking forward to, well, talking with you and Jay about all the stuff that we have to talk about today. So why don't we just get right to it? But before we do, I want to make sure I thank Elijah, who's a new free trial Patreon supporter. Thank you so much for checking us out, uh, potentially supporting us. We appreciate that. Okay. So I thought we'd start with uh, the Supreme Court because the Supreme Court this week announced it would hear Donald Trump's appeal was denied by the D.C. Circuit concerning his immunity from prosecution for his alleged efforts to illegally influence the presidential election in 2020. Now, the unsigned order from the court scheduled oral argument for the week of April 22nd, and it's expected that the court may not actually issue a ruling until June. And even if they largely or entirely reject Trump's immunity claim, his trial would be unlikely to start until maybe sometime around September at the earliest, which, of course, raises the question of whether or not the Biden Justice Department would be willing to actually start a trial against a political opponent that would almost certainly be going on when people were voting and would prevent Trump from being out on the campaign trail as opposed to in a courtroom. And if the court finds that Trump has some immunity from criminal prosecution, then it's likely that the trial court will have to sort out which alleged criminal acts may be or may not be covered by immunity and which aren't, which could potentially delay the trial past the election and even into 2025. And it seems almost like a foregone conclusion for most people that if Trump does, in fact, win in 2025, he would direct his attorney general to drop the case against him. Just stop, just stop prosecuting me. Exactly. So now, now, nearly three months ago, special counsel Jack Smith asked the Supreme Court to hear a direct appeal of Trump's immunity claim, which would bypass the D.C. Circuit. And in that request, he cited the imperative public importance of the court to resolve the claim. The court denied this request, said, no, let the D.C. Circuit hear it. And then, of course, that three-judge panel, the D.C. Circuit, unanimously ruled against Trump on February 6th. Trump appealed to the Supreme Court on the 12th, 
after which it took the justices over two weeks to agree to even hear the case in the first place. And then they gave him 70 days, essentially, to prepare arguments that, by the way, have been briefed now twice. So the sole question that the court will be considering is whether and if so, to what extent does a former president enjoy presidential immunity from criminal prosecution for conduct alleged to involve official acts during his tenure in office? So already in my comments, I think I gave a sense of how I feel about this. And so I thought we'd start with you, Jay, because you might have a slightly different take. So I, first of all, I'll take a victory lap in that I said that the court would take this. I thought they should, and, and I'm glad they are. Um, in terms of the, the timing, I, 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 you seem to imply that this was, I don't know, taking longer than it ought to. And in my sense is it's moving quicker than usual. And I think that's just our, our perspectives on on the court. The fact that the court, you know, took two weeks to to make a decision on cert, that's that's moving pretty quick. Um so I I'm I'm not surprised that they, they took it because I think this is a big issue that is bigger than Donald Trump. Um and the 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 issue that, that has been teed up, and I, I think it's it's a good one, is the DC Circuit's opinion seems to conflict with um, the U.S. Supreme Court's decision in Nixon versus Fitzgerald, uh, which is a 1981 case. Now, Nixon versus Fitzgerald dealt with civil immunity, but I think there is a, a obviously a good question as to whether, well, if, if civil immunity, and, and I should, should clarify, in uh, Nixon versus Fitzgerald, what the court said was, and it was a 5-4 decision, uh, was that the president enjoys absolute civil immunity for acts that are official acts and within the outer perimeter of, of his official acts. That case had to do with Nixon firing a Air Force accountant, essentially who took issue with, with him and, and testified before Congress. And, you know, the court essentially said, listen, this is, you know, the president has, has a lot to do and the Constitution correctly protects him from being distracted from these duties by the the concern over civil suits. Now, in that case, there's it's again, it's there's it's it's unclear. Well, should this same rule apply to criminal suits? I, I think there's quite a good argument there is, that it should. The argument against is well, criminal cases have have for more protections than what civil cases do. Um, and I'm not I'm not sure I entirely buy that, but but I think that that tees up the argument, and I think it's an important question that the the court ought to be taking up. Justin, what do you think? Um, this is where I have to, you know, play the I'm not a lawyer card in some ways in terms of process. But I, I do agree that uh, with Jay that this is an important issue to take up. You know, these are sort of big claims that the Supreme Court is there for when it comes to balancing powers and, and what, you know, office holders can do. It is moving fast, but I think it probably needs to move fast just given sort of the context of, of things. You know, this is something that, that comes to bear more or less immediately on the, the presidential election and, you know, potential all kinds of things. So, you know, I, I think in that sense, it, it makes sense that they're taking it and, and resolving it, presumably. Um, you know, I'm maybe a little more skeptical of the idea of, of presidential immunity just across the board. And I agree it makes sense, you know, for uh, the reasons that Jay said. 
that you certainly wouldn't want to prosecute a, a sitting president or you know, open them up to civil suits or things like that for the distraction factor. And just then, you know, anybody with an ax to grind could could sue. On the other hand, I, I think a lot of what Trump's accused of here, and I think this may be, you know, the, the big question for the court is, you know, ultimately, were these accusations, the, these things, crimes Trump's accused of, are they within the purview of his job, you know, or are they outside the, the realm of that? Um, you know, thinking back to, to Nixon, uh, certainly we didn't see this litigated. But, you know, when Ford pardoned Nixon, that certainly implied that, that you know, there might be a thought that he's open to lawsuits, at least, you know, after the fact. So. Uh, it seems like we all agree that this is an important question. And it is a question where there is at least some reasonable dispute. I think maybe where the disagreement is, Jay, you, you brought this up about the court's pace. I agree with you that the court is moving faster than it normally would. But let's take a look at the, you know, the court's action in the Trump ballot eligibility case. They scheduled oral arguments for 34 days after they granted cert compared to 70 days here. Or let's take a look at the court's action in the Nixon Watergate tapes, right? It took the court the entire process from the district court decision to the final decision of the Supreme Court, 54 days. The court can move very quickly when it wants to. Bush versus Gore is another example. And it seems to me that the court had to know. There's no way they couldn't know that in setting the schedule they set, there would effectively be no way to to give Donald Trump a fair trial before the election without at least impeding his ability to run as a political candidate. And that to me is... I, I have. I am not, as you know, Jay. I am not a Supreme Court. You're going to go can, aren't you? I'm not going. No, I'm not. But it is. It is perplexing to me. The best, the the most charitable reading I have of this is that well, maybe when the Supreme Court said, "Let's let the D.C. Circuit handle it," they were hoping or expecting that the D.C. Circuit would issue a ruling that would essentially say that Donald Trump had some sort of partial immunity, would spell that out, and they would be able to stay out of it. And the D.C. Circuit didn't do that. They basically said no immunity and we count on the protections of the, the, the criminal process to make sure there aren't any frivolous criminal lawsuits. And the Supreme Court said, well, that's not what we were hoping for. I guess we got to take it up anyway. <laughs> but even with that charitable I, I, I think that's a reasonable reading, yeah. Yeah, but, but even with that charitable reading, the idea that they would need 70 days to brief a case that they've briefed twice already, and the expectation now, and I hope this is wrong, that the court is going to not rule within a week or two after they hear that on that the week of the April 22nd oral arguments, but wait until sometime in June. Given what that means for the trial, that that's not going to happen for the election, I think that is, again, I don't want to go conspiracy mode, but I, I fail to understand how that makes any sense. So maybe you can maybe you can give me a more charitable understanding of that, Jay, because I am lost. Well, again, I I would go just to, you know, based on on my experience and what schedules usually look like. I would say the standard, you know, briefing schedule 
Well, first of all, yeah, you usually get like, I want to say it's 45 days, but you know, between, between exchanging briefs, there's, there's usually a 30 day period, right? First side gets, gets its 30 days to prepare and the next, you know, respondents get uh, 30 days after, uh, then there is a reply brief, which is, oh, I don't have it in front of me, but it's something like probably 15 days after. So that's, that's sort of a normal sort of schedule, you know? So again, I, I, I get it that, uh, this looks like the court is to, to some would say this is, this is slow walking. I, I would, I would disagree. And in, in some cases you can argue, look, this gives the, the state, the federal government in this case, you know, additional time to make its arguments. I, I see what you're saying. So, let, let me again, be clear. I, I mean, maybe, maybe. And the, the other, and one, one more thing, I guess, is I think the court would be hard pressed to say, uh, look, we want to hurry this up. So that Trump, just in case so we don't find immunity, Trump can get prosecuted in time for the election. Um, that that too would be a bad look. Sure, but the very real question. I want to be clear on this before I ask ask you about this, Justin. I'm not arguing that the court is slow walking this. There's, I mean, clearly the court is is taking this up under an expedited process. But given the almost certainty. That this process means that should Donald Trump win the election, he will never be held to account for this. This is essentially the court saying that, well, if he wins the election, that that's it. And they know that as a as a political reality. I'm not saying they didn't. They're not moving faster than they normally do. What I'm saying is that they could move considerably faster still, as they have in other cases involving Donald Trump's eligibility, but they chose not to do that. Justin, what do you think? Uh, yeah, I, I would tend to agree. You know, I, I think just given particularly the time-sensitive nature of this, you know, and honestly, I, I struggle to think, you know, what the potential implications of this are, you know, one way or the other. You know, it feels like this could end up being some kind of October surprise almost that could blow up in any direction, you know, depending on how long they drag this out. You know, it is, uh, you know, thinking of it from kind of an electoral perspective, you know, there's kind of a, yeah, a hope, I think, among a lot of Democrats that, oh, you know, Trump will be in jail before, you know, this happens. And, and that was never in the time before the election happens. But that was really never in the timeline, I don't think, given the kind of when these these cases ended up starting. But I do think, you know, depending on what happens, you know, certainly they could drop this, you know, kind of later in the elect in the election cycle. And Trump, you know, if they side with Trump, you know, not only is it the potential for avoiding prosecution, but I think he would also treat it as a victory lap, you know, in the court of public opinion where, you know, hey, look, you know, the corrupt Biden administration is, is coming after me and, and it's a political witch hunt. And, you know, the Supreme Court agrees. And, you know, dropping that late in the game, I think, could have some real, you know, electoral consequences, too, depending on how they decide. I mean, it could blow up in his face also if they decide against him. But there won't be a resolution. Jay, you uh, you're getting ready to say something there. Yeah. So I, I agree with with what Justin said uh, on the, you know, maybe. And this is what I was going to point out is. Is, is is there much difference in this case with the if say you want it super expedited, right? Does that materially change uh, the trial date? Let's say we move everything up, you know, thirty days, get a decision out end of April. 
and then it goes back to the trial court to schedule. At that point, aren't we still looking at a trial uh, right before a presidential election? And I think if if I'm the Supreme Court and I'm weighing, one, the importance of the issue, two, the importance of the perception that this is this is being treated sort of in the normal course, and in three, what difference it would make one way or the other. Um, I, I think I, I would do this, this sort of, you know, expedited but not super expedited. I'd also uh, draw a distinction between the ballot cases where we're talking eligibility and people are voting. I mean, primaries are going on right now, and there's a question as to, you know, whether the president can be on the ballot. Um, Super Tuesdays next week. Um, so I, I, I think there's a, a difference there, and you can say there is more urgency uh, on that case as opposed to the urgency of um, the federal government. Like, we really, really, really want to prosecute him before it gets too close to the election. Um, I, I think that's, yeah, to me, that's that's the the there's a distinction there. I mean, it's a it's it's a no win situation for for the person for the for for the federal government in that sense because if you say well we really want to get this going before the election then the argument is well this was this was rushed and uh, he's not getting Donald Trump's not getting enough time to actually make his arguments or his attorneys are but then if you wait for a longer period then the argument is well now we can't have the trial because Donald Trump is being prevented from being on the campaign trial and running for press. So, and then if it's delayed past that and Donald Trump wins, then there never is any trial. So basically it seems to me that the, the government's in a, in essentially a no win situation here is, is what you're saying. Well, let, let me, let me ask it this way. Uh, what do you think the government's interest ought to be in this case? And that's, that's sort of a, because I think that's that's sort of an issue, right? Absolutely. I think, I mean, the government is, you know, and when you say one is the interest of the government or the other, you would say is, is, is there an electoral interest of, of the Biden campaign? Um, and that's that in itself is troubling, right? I I do think if, if the government, the, the quote unquote government is seen as we want to hurry up and, and prosecute this guy because we want to make sure we can prosecute him before he's elected. That that that's a little troubling. And, and quite honestly, I think that accounts for a, a good deal of Trump's popularity in, in the polls. So I, I think we're we're looking at this in two different ways. The, the government's duty, the prosecutor's duty in this is not to secure a conviction, um, but rather to see that the justice is done. And and I, there was a, a great line and I, I'm getting it's. It's from a Supreme Court case about duties of prosecutor, and and I should have printed out beforehand. Um, but it talks just about that, that the prosecutor is in a, a very special position um, as opposed to your your typical litigant, a civil litigant, right, whose job is to go out and represent the client. Their job is to to represent justice and 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 in all its all its forms. That would include um, presidential immunity. So. That to me, and look theoretically, I would say if the court says that Trump is not immune and he wins, well, in four years, if there's a new administration, he could be prosecuted again. I, I don't know what the statute of limitations is, but I, I I guess it's probably fairly fairly lengthy on on the types of things he's been accused of. So, um, that's 
you know, and, and, I, and I guess the, 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 the other, the downside would be is, is there, is the interest in, well, I'll, I'll just, I'll leave it there. I'll let you guys well, yeah, discuss uh, so, amongst yourself. So, so let, let me, let me say this. Let me, let me summarize what I, I think the most charitable reading is, is again, that the DC circuits could have done more and had they done more the supreme court wouldn't have had to take up the case and but now they do because they feel that more needs to be said aside from the fact that well there is no immunity whatsoever and that we just count on the system to sort of you know to to sort of weed out the frivolous cases now one thing we haven't talked about is the actual substance. And we talked about this, Jay, you and I did when we looked at the the D.C. Circuit's ruling. But there is a school of thought that agrees entirely with that, saying that, well, why should a president have immunity? That was a D.C. Circuit said, you know, we have these protections. You can't just bring criminal suit like you can bring a civil suit. You have to get an indictment, right? Go through the grand jury process and all of these protections. And there are more protections and, and no one's disputing that. You're saying, Jay, it sounds like that that's not enough. And there potentially should be at least some some immunity. And Justin, you haven't really uh, jumped in on this on this topic, what do you think? Do you agree with the D.C. Circuit that that basically there should be no immunity from criminal uh, prosecution for former presidents? Um, you know, I, I think that it is probably a matter of it would depend on what, perhaps. I, I think in a lot of ways this sort of hinges on whether or not this is something that's part of his official duties. You know, I think it would be a, a very clear-cut case, and then you know, he's not bringing you know these arguments, say, in the New York fraud trial. Admittedly, that's you know civil, but you know that's clearly not part of his presidential duties or, or you know anything like that. I think there's a case to be made, you know, on some level, in much the same way as protecting against you know potentially frivolous civil suits of some degree of immunity. But I think you know the the facts in this case you know, largely feel like he is operating, you know, outside of, of official duties. I mean, his case, his claim seems to be that he is. And and I think that's something to be resolved. But I also think that's potentially something to be resolved, you know, kind of in the trial courts in a lot of ways, because it sort of centers around the facts of the circumstances. It's certainly a question of law, you know, as well. But, you know, I don't think that, that there's necessarily no immunity. But this certainly feels like a case that that boy is is kind of outside of the scope of things that ought to be protected. Yeah, and in a way, I should point out, you could argue that a ruling here potentially protects Joe Biden more than it might protect Donald Trump if Donald Trump wins. And so, oh, absolutely, because certainly. It is not at all difficult to envision Donald Trump on his you know twenty twenty five revenge tour, instructing whatever you know Lick Spittily gets to be Attorney General to to basically go after Joe Biden, and if you have to make up charges, you go ahead and do that. He's a bad he's a bad hombre. We need to take him down. I, I don't know. He probably wouldn't say that exactly, but maybe he would. I don't know. But the point being is that that protection would be there for all future presidents and gee i know that's something that that you agree with yeah and and to me that's that's why I, if i'm the court i have to look at this is this is a bigger issue than who's president in 2024 uh, or who wins the election in 2024 the, the 
because look, there are there are a lot bigger things at stake. And uh, so, for example, I'd ask you to sp- spare a thought for Anwar Awlaki. I don't know if you remember him. He was an American citizen who was in Yemen. Now he was he was a a I would say, and I would characterize him as a very very bad guy. He was a he was a terrorist. Um, he was killed by an intentional drone strike by the Obama administration. Um, could and the the I think the uh, statute of limitations for murder is is probably twenty years or something like that. Could could a, a federal prosecutor bring a murder charge against Barack Obama, perhaps against Eric Holder as well, uh, for the murder of an of a U.S. citizen? Now, look, I would I think I would argue that you know the drone strike on a terrorist is clearly within the, the president's scope of responsibility as commander in chief. Um, and uh, while I disagree with Barack Obama on a whole lot of things, I'm, I, be, I was with him on this. But imagine the the consequences, and this is sort of drawing from the Nixon versus Fitzgerald case. If you say, well, you know, civil suits are are really a pain and can distract the president and might chill the president from taking action if they could be civilly liable. Uh, how much more chilling is criminal liability? Uh, how much more chilling is criminal liability, especially in in this type of of on a war footing? Would 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 a president pull his punches from? From taking this this kind of action, um, uh, if 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 you could be criminally prosecuted down the line, especially and again with a long statute of limitations, and I think that while well, I was going to say nobody is arguing that presidents or ex presidents are entirely above the law. That's not true, actually. Donald Trump's attorney said basically that no, that is an argument, but almost nobody thinks that that is a reasonable argument and the outcome that we will get. But as you point out, Jay, there are complexities involved when you're dealing with the president, who's not just another private citizen who happens to have this job, the, like the example that you cite, and there are others that others have cited as well. So it gets a little bit tricky. And I feel like those who sort of simplify the question down to, well, the president's either subject to the law or not. To me, it's just not quite that straightforward, unfortunately. And sometimes you have to make trade-offs like in the civil cases. And I think that's why the Supreme Court does need to rule on this. And again, I'm just disappointed it's taking going to take as long as it did. But more there'll certainly be more on that when we get to yeah, oral. Can I throw in yeah, one one ahead, last little piece? And this yeah. is gonna sound really counterintuitive and I'll probably get all the hate on this. But the 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 Trump argument is is not inconsistent with what the Nixon Fitz versus Fitzgerald argument is, where they say no absolute immunity, um, you know for again for for acts you know within the official capacity or within the outside perimeter. Now I, I would agree with with Justin. I think there's you know that outside perimeter stuff. There's there's some factual issues right mixed up in there that that probably are more appropriate for the trial court to deal with than the Supreme Court. So even if you know it gets sent back, you, you're you're still going to take more time. But the the issue is that the D.C. Circuit tended to say there is no immunity, and there is is this no one above law. I would I would suggest, and this is going to sound controversial and shocking, um, but in some cases, yes, the president is above the law, or at least above the law as the the judiciary can impose it upon him. 
you could say there are other hedges, those being political, those being concerns for the president's future uh, reputation, uh, you know, impeachment. And it's and it's odd that even in Nixon versus Fitzgerald, which was decided in 1981, Nixon had been out of office for for eight years then. The court said, yeah, impeachment's an important remedy. So I, I think that's that's an issue. And, and what the court is weighing, right? What you're what you're weighing is the potential prosecution of of one officer. And I, I'd also, uh, you know, point out that most federal officers have have broad immunity for what they do under within their scope of their jobs, versus damage to the balance of powers of of a. Uh, you know, and that's and that's one of those. It, it's one of the, it's it's sort of an Af- it's sort of akin to the better one guilty man go free than the nine innocents be convicted, or the other way around. Not better than nine guilty people go free. You know what I'm saying? Yes, basically. Uh, but it's sort of the same thing. It is better better one guilty president uh, go unpunished at least if by officially by the judiciary than we have damage to the the balance of powers and that the judiciary uh, thence controls the presidency. I really want to read there was there was a can I can I point of personal privilege? Um, <laughs> okay. Just because just because you you love them and I love them. But in Nixon versus Fitzgerald, the court cites a letter from Thomas Jefferson. Exactly to the prosecutor because this this came up in the context of Jefferson, who was the sitting president at the time, gets a subpoena from the prosecutor to come and testify at the Aaron Burr trial. Um, and, and Jefferson responds, the leading principle of our Constitution is the independence of the legislature, executive, and judiciary of each other, and none are more jealous of this than the judiciary. But would the executive be independent of the judiciary if you're subject to the commands of the latter, if emphasis in Jefferson's original, and and to imprisonment and for disobedience. If the several courts could bandy him from pillar to post, keep him constantly trudging from north to south and east to west, and withdraw him entirely from his constitutional duties. The intention of the Constitution that each branch should be independent of the other is further manifested by the means that is furnished to each to protect itself from enterprises of force attempted on them by the others. And none has given more effectual or diversified means than to the executive. That's that's Thomas Jefferson, Mike, so I, I know you put yeah, I find it to that. be totally, totally, you know, <laughs> crap, basically. But I will, I will end this segment oh, using my point of, of right? personal privilege by ignoring oh, Thomas Jefferson, as he so roundly deserves in so many areas, and actually referring back to something of that same era. Uh, There's a far more reputable individual, Chief Justice John Marshall, in Marbury versus Madison. I think there was a passage because I've been rereading that actually this morning. I was yes, rereading yeah. it, thinking about executive immunity and privilege and separation of powers and that. And one passage that really struck me was when when Marshall wrote, uh, the conclusion is that from this reasoning where the heads of the departments are the political or confidential agents of the executive merely to execute the will of the president – or rather to act in cases in which the executive produces a constitutional or legal discretion, nothing can be more perfectly clear than that their acts are only politically examinable. Now, that to me is that, in fact, was part of the argument that Donald Trump's attorneys made. And it is it is not at all ironclad. It is open to dispute. But my point is, is it is not 
this is not an issue of is Donald Trump above the law, yes or no. And so there, I'll leave it at that with John Marshall, hoping that people will just forget Thomas Jefferson. So, yeah. well, John Marshall, you know, was uh, Thomas Jefferson's cousin. Well, you know, you can't pick your you can't pick your they didn't, family. They didn't it's get along. Fault. They didn't yeah. see eye to eye on a whole lot. Like a conflict of interest, of sorts. Exactly. Yeah. Washington hated Jefferson too. Everyone decent person hated Jefferson. John Adams did. Anyway, <laughs> okay, moving on from that, I'll try to get off my Jefferson hatred. But uh, this was this was uh, the the piece I quoted was Justice Powell. Okay. Quoting Thomas Jefferson. Well, see, that's still um, anyway, but, but, you know, so the, the less we can bring Thomas Jefferson in any argument, I think the better it is, but you know, that's, that's me and I'm right. Okay. Let's move on to something entirely different guys. You know, last week when May and I were recording the episode, we do that Saturday mornings, just like now the Michigan primary was going on. And so we didn't get a chance to talk about that. And, and I'll just say to absolutely no one's surprise. Both Joe Biden, Donald Trump breezed the victory. Trump got 68.1%. 12 delegates. Haley got 26.6%. Four delegates. Joe Biden, 81.1%. And 115 delegates, though uncommitted was a not a strong second, but second, 13.2% and two delegates. So I didn't find much surprising here, but I felt like, you know, it's important to mention here and there have been some talk about it. Justin, is there anything when you look at the Michigan primary results, anything that jumped out to you or you're like, yeah, pretty much as expected? There is a little unexpected, actually. There's a little bit to unpack. You know, obviously, the top line numbers are pretty obvious and then really that's been baked in from the beginning that, you know, clearly this is going to be a Trump versus Biden rematch and, and you know. I don't think there's been, you know, since the Iowa caucus forward, I don't think there's been a whole lot of doubt about that. <laughs> I do think, you know, this does highlight something and and where this goes, you know, if this spills into the general, you know, remains to be seen. But, you know, for both of them being the front runners and one being the incumbent and, you know, frankly, Trump sort of running as a pseudo incumbent in his way, you know, their, their support here both seems a little bit soft. To my mind, uh, you know, the Trump, you know, he's clearly running against an actual actual person, which and he's not the incumbent. So the dynamics are, are clearly a little different there. But, uh, you know, he's certainly beating Haley pretty handily, but not by maybe as much as you'd think, you know, at this point in the game. And for Biden, you know, the this stronger than expected showing, I think, of, of uncommitted. Uh, you know, goes to, uh, you know, some fractures within the party a little bit. I don't think it's, you know, fatal by any means, but it is, I mean, even if this is just a preview of, of Michigan in the fall, you know, that's, you know, the margin in uh, 2016 and 2020 was, you know, low five digits. It was about 10,000 votes in 2016. Um, you know, there were a hundred thousand uncommitted. And so, there is some question, you know, will these folks show up and vote? Was this an aberration? Are they a drop in the bucket? Or, you know, is that a legit problem? You know, when you have 100,000 people that uh, bothered to go to, you know, the Democratic primary and then not vote for you, you know, does is that a, a sign of trouble ahead in a pretty important swing state? Before, before I turn it to you, Jay, I do want to put that uncommitted vote in at least a little bit of recent historical perspective. 13.2% voted uncommitted, at which 
certainly that's that's not nothing right over Biden. But I'll point out that the last time an incumbent Democrat was running for reelection, that would be Obama in 2012 in the Michigan Democratic primary, 10.7 percent chose uncommitted. So that 13.2% is still more than that, certainly. But putting it in perspective, it's not like, oh, my God, some historically, profoundly crazy rebuke. Jay? Yeah, I would I would agree. And I think Justin's right in that what remains to be seen is whether these voters come home in November. I think my sense is most of them will. Right. When it comes down to the binary choice. And, and this has been the, the argument. I think I've seen a lot of Republicans making saying, well, if people are voting for Nikki Haley, they are therefore never Trumpers and will either vote for Biden or just not vote in November. I think that's true for a percentage of them, but I don't think it's true for the majority of them. Um, so, I, you know, we'll we'll wait and see. But I, I don't. I think I think basing this idea saying, oh, we're just going to subtract those numbers from the candidates November vote totals right now is is premature. Yeah, I, I certainly would agree with that. And this this ties in at least a little bit to something that came out literally just before we, we get on the air. And, and listeners at this point, you probably have seen it. Some of you that new New York Times seeing a college poll that has. Biden at 43 to Trump at 48. But I think and there's also a pretty significant enthusiasm gap between Biden supporters and Trump supporters. Something like 23 percent of Democrats say they're highly enthusiastic about Biden compared to 48 percent for Trump. And I think a lot of that is not terrifically surprising. We're going to see those margins narrow a whole lot. And so sort of the optimistic view of this, as well as for Michigan, for the Biden administration and for Democratic voters and supporters is that, well, these margins tend to tend to narrow. They're kind of the Biden campaign hasn't really swung in. The voters will come home for the large part. And it's going to come to basically persuading that small number of independents. And I think the Biden campaign is counting on re-reminders of all the stuff going on with Trump to get enough of those folks in swing states to kind of move over there, though we have not seen that movement yet, and we probably won't see it for a little while uh, longer. Justin, any thoughts on that? You know, I, I, I agree with, I, I think, most of that, you know, and, and with Jay. You know, these polls this far out still don't tell us a whole lot, honestly. And, and you know, that gap is basically within the margin of error, you know, on, on the high side of the margin of error, but it, it's certainly not a, a slam dunk for anything. Not to mention we haven't experienced the entire campaign yet. So, you know, that that certainly has an impact. And, you know, I think people do mostly come home. I've been skeptical as well. You know, there are these various polls showing that, you know, a quarter of Haley voters wouldn't support Trump. And, and I find that fairly unlikely. The one thing that I where I do take this maybe a little more seriously, and frankly, for for both of them, I think both candidates have this issue is, you know, we do spend a lot of time focusing on on swing voters, which, you know, you've admitted there aren't very many of anymore. But the other part of this story that I think often gets overlooked is is turnout and get out the vote efforts. And, you know, I think there is a, an enthusiasm problem there uh, to an extent where things like this do make me a, a little more, you know, a, a, a little more of the mind that, that this could have 
some impact. On the other hand, it could be an offsetting impact for, for both of them. Uh, where, you know, when these margins are so tight, you know, flipping a vote, certainly that's, that's essentially worth two, right? You know, you would take it off one person's pile and add it to the other. But an abstention is still worth one, you know, for, for the other guy. And, you know, when you get down to these margins, you know, I, I mean, I'm looking back at 16 and perhaps still bitter. But, you know, it, when we look at, you know, it's like 70,000 votes across three states, you know, I think it's fair to say that, you know, 70,000, you know, Bernie supporter abstentions, you know, more or less swung the election. I mean, lots of other things swung the election, too. But especially in these tight races like we're seeing, and especially, you know, very tight individual states, you know, I, I think this this turnout stuff is is perhaps more important than, than it gets credit for. The flip side of that, you know, there's enthusiasm, and then there's, you know, abject horror at the other person winning. And so I think, you know, Biden, where he may have a bit of an advantage, you know, Trump supporters are loyal. Not sure that anybody is all that enthusiastic about Biden. I certainly remember being at the 2020 caucuses and, and you know, his group was pretty dull. But, you know, they can probably get behind somebody and certainly, you know, he's going to come out swinging with a lot of anti-Trump rhetoric to make this a referendum on Trump. And I think that gets most of those people back in the end that, you know, they're finally that's probably what gets them to come home. It's not that anybody's super excited about Joe Biden in a lot of ways, but boy, a lot of Democrats would do pretty much anything to not have Trump again. Okay. So I would, just, I would just add one, one like a last observation. Um, and that is to a large extent, the Trump abstentions, Trump, uh, <clears throat> never Trumper type uh, votes are personal. Meaning, look, it's, it's, we just don't like this guy personally, because of his character, et cetera, et cetera. Um, the, some of the Biden problems, I think, tend to be more coalitional. And I think that may be more of a problem, especially in a state like Michigan. And I'm thinking, uh, you know, specifically about Arab Americans, right, which are a big, big voting block in Michigan, or at least a big enough part of a coalition uh, that if, if they were to stay home en masse, could make a difference. You know, likewise, African-Americans have been trending not to bringing in the, the percentages that, that one would be expected in a typical um, election for Democrats. So I think I think that's that's an issue that, that's maybe a little bit different in that there are in the African-American. One of the, the complaints is is with immigration policy. Um, so I, I think that's again, I'm not saying it's it changes anything one way or another, but I do think there's a, a difference in terms of one being a, a coalitional group uh, versus just a, a bunch of individuals who don't like yeah, Trump's character. Th there's certainly a long way to go and a lot can happen and it still is very early. But the final word on this I'll, I'll take for myself is that if if you're looking at the polls, you would much rather be in Donald Trump's position than in Joe Biden's position, whether it's the national polls or the swing state polls. Right now, things look a lot better for Donald Trump than they do for Joe Biden. But let's move on to something that has, well, I won't say has nothing to do with presidential politics, but a little less so, at least. That's the short-term continuing resolution, because late this week, Congress actually avoided a government shutdown, a good thing most people would say, not everyone, by passing legislation that gives them 
a few more weeks to wrap up their ongoing appropriation negotiations. And they split the extensions that they approved into two parts. The first has a March 8th deadline, and that covers six of the 12 annual spending bills. And then the second one has a deadline that's March 22nd, and it has the other half of those bills. And for that first part, the final text hasn't been released, but Speaker Johnson says it's going to be out and be voted on in this next week. And the most conservative members of the caucus almost certainly going to be unhappy with the final measure. Johnson, in fact, said, hey, if you're expecting a lot of home runs and grand slams here, I admit you'll be disappointed, but we will be able to secure a number of policy victories. And uh, he said that to his caucus, you should be proud of this progress, especially considering how narrow the majority in the chamber is. Well, that second group, well, it's unclear at this point how close legislators are actually to a deal here, which kind of explains the longer extension. And those extensions passed with large bipartisan majorities in both chambers, 320 to 99 in the House, 77 to 13 in the Senate. And, of course, Speaker Johnson needed plenty of Democratic votes. In fact, nearly two-thirds of the support for this came from the minority party in the House. And on the Senate side, all 13 of those no votes came from Republicans, pretty much the usual suspects, uh, Blackburn, Cruz, Holly, Johnson, Lee, Tuberville, Vance. And there were 10 senators who actually didn't cast a vote, nine Republicans and Democrat it or Democrat ish Joe Manchin. So that's where we are with the continuing resolution thing. Jay, I'll start with you. Oh, what do you think about this latest CR or group of CR? You know, on, on the merits, I, I'm not crazy about it. You know, as as I'm not crazy about CRs in general, and we've preached for years and years and years that we ought to return to regular order and, and all of that. Um, that said, on the the politics of it, I think it's it's a smart move because I think the iron law that I try to preach to everyone is that Republicans always lose government shutdowns, always and forever. So don't shut down the government. But so anyway, that's yeah. I don't have I don't have terribly strong feelings. It, it's one of these. It's spending more money than I would like to see spent. But I'm all for the three yards and a cloud of dust kind of approach. So, Justin, what's your take on this? Um, boy, it certainly feels like nothing earth shattering. I, I would tend tend to agree with Jay that you know the politics of this seem to to kind of blow back on Republicans and. and Frankly, it, it sort of surprises me. I mean, it, it, it feels like, you know, Lucy and the football a little bit, you know, where there's this, you know, Freedom Caucus element that I think are convinced that, you know, the American public's going to see the wisdom of their ways by shutting down the government. And it certainly never seems to work that way. Um, you know, I, I would also agree it would be really nice to go back to, like, not doing this. You know, the the number of times I'm in front of a class and say, hey, it looks like the government's going to shut down again next week if, you know, something doesn't happen. Um, it, it's just, you know, it's just exhausting and, and really not great governance, you know, with with that. So I think, you know, getting back to kind of a more normal budgeting process and, and you know, frankly, I'm not a fan of the debt ceiling just in general as, as a just it seems like a, a sort of sets up these situations all the time without really gaining a whole lot, uh, you know, drives up the stakes and, and, you know, actually does get a shutdown periodically. So, uh, but as far as this specific one, I, you know, so far I don't have a lot to say about it. 
Yeah, I'll, I'll remind folks that Mike Johnson, when he was campaigning for the job of speaker, which God knows why you'd want to be a Republican speaker at this point, but promised promised that there would be no CRs on his watch. And in fact, all of the individual 12 individual spending bills would be voted on by the deadline. And of course, that was either either Mike Johnson is the most naive man in Congress or he knew he was lying to gain the support of the Freedom Caucus folks. And I think the latter is almost certainly the case. And that, in fact, happened. Now, Johnson has sort of claimed, well, hey, we did break it into two. And he said, uh, so this is a sign, right? We're on the right track. The omnibus fever, as he called it, has been broken. And so voting on two separate Bills of six is better than voting on one of 12, and we're moving in the right direction, to which Chip Roy, who's, I think, pretty representative of the Freedom Caucus, said, "Ah, it's just the swamp doing what the swamp does. And honestly, a lot of what the swamp does is, I think, pretty much okay, at least if you compare it to the Freedom Caucus alternative, as far as I'm concerned. So final question, guys, will we have a shutdown? I don't think, I I think it's almost certain we're not going to have a shutdown on March 8th, those bills seem to be pretty close to being, you know, uh, approved, I think. But will we have a shutdown on March 23rd, do you think, after that second deadline? Or do you think we will come to the brink and enough Republicans with some Democrats will say, nope, we're not going to go there? What do you think? Uh, let's start with you, Justin. I, I'm inclined to say, you know, just after the the kind of backlash that, that we've had with, with the public in the past over these things, these shutdowns. I'm inclined to say that, that they'll probably try to avert it. You know, I think we saw this, you know, with this, this batch here. You can win over enough Republicans, and, and if all the Democrats are on board, you know, it's certainly not a, a way that, that Republicans and Republican leadership would like to be. But I think they don't want to get caught holding the bag when, when everything shuts down and facing that backlash. So my suspicion is they'll get it done, but I wouldn't hold me to that by any means. Okay. Jay? Uh, my sense would be this, a similar, there should be no shutdown. It, it would be a political malpractice for the Republicans to, to force the shutdown, given given their advantage on other issues that, that voters are going to vote on. Uh, why would you bring in this distraction? So I, I doubt it, but I'm also, I never want to discount Republicans' ability to snatch defeat from the jaws of victory. So, so, so then... I guess, I mean, the argument from the Freedom Caucus folks is, is that we need, we need to do this because we are on a, not just an unsustainable path, but this is, this is an imminent danger, essentially, this, this deficit spending. And we have to use this leverage while we have it because there's a very real chance that in 2025, the Republicans won't be in control in the House of Representatives. And so, what I mean, I guess, Jay, you're a Republican here on this. What do you think about that logic? I mean, if you're if you are a diehard fiscal conservative just freaking out over deficits, how do you respond to these people? I mean, what's your you know, what do you say to the Chip Roy's of Congress? The, the response is make the best deal you can get uh, and move on and make a better deal the next time. If you're if your plan is. Listen, we understand we're going to lose seats. So, I mean, I, I think that's sort of just a, a bizarre sort of uh, way to look at this, right? I mean, the, the goal is 
listen, if nothing's going to get fixed until you have a majority, and even then, right? I mean, I think so many Republicans have complained for years and years and years, myself among them, that even when you have a majority, you know, spending never actually goes down. I mean, maybe the pace of spending slows a little, but losing, you know, you, you at least have to. I, I, I get it that the numbers say it's likely the Democrats take back the House next year, this year. Um, but that doesn't mean you you just you hand it over to them. You know what I mean? And and in exchange for in exchange for what? Right? Um, you know, again, you you get the shutdown, and and do you, you know, a shutdown doesn't really change the numbers at the end of the day. Um, right. So. In in that in that Johnson has demonstrated that he will he will get Democratic votes in order to avert a shutdown. And that's going to be yeah. more of a priority yeah, yeah. to him than kind of making and look, sure. I mean, we're in a situation where the Freedom Caucus folks, you know, they're, you're going to have people who are, are able to, you know, take a walk on this one um, or vote no, because there'll be enough Democrat votes to, to, to get it through. But I just, I just don't see this as a, the hill worth dying on uh, this, this, this election cycle. Yeah. And, I know that there are a lot of House Republicans who are deeply unhappy with Mike Johnson, but I wonder how much of that unhappiness is performative, though yet from what we hear and, you know, behind the scenes leaks from closed caucus meetings that no, it's a it's a very real anger. And it kind of just makes me wonder what those folks actually thought Mike Johnson would be able to do. It seems to me that I, I certainly disagree with him on a lot. But given the position he is in and given the narrow majority, I actually think he's, all things considered, doing probably about the best he can by his caucus, even though I think that's directionally and policy-wise wrong right. for the country. That's sort of my point. The numbers are what they are, and they're not going to change. You know, you're not going to pick up substantially more Republican votes and, and be able to substantially move that that number and especially considering you got to get it through the Senate as well. So, but it certainly is good for the fundraising for those particular members who can speak out on it and walk away and have that free vote as you often talk about it as Jay. All right. Well, that about brings us to the end of our regular show, but there are a bunch of things we wanted to get to that we didn't have time for. We will be getting to them on our midweek supporters show. We want to talk about more Trump trial stuff, Biden and Trump's dueling border visits, Mitch McConnell stepping down, maybe take some listener questions, a whole bunch of stuff. And if you are a supporter, you'll be getting that on Tuesday, as always. And if you're not a supporter, we hope you'll consider becoming one to get that and a bunch of other stuff like ad free versions of everything we release that full length midweek supporters episode instead of just a little bit of a preview access to our discord group, which Lately, it's just been nuts. I've been going back and forth with uh, a bunch of people both on the right and on the left. I argue with everyone on that group, essentially. <laughs> no one's happy. Anyway, a bunch of things. You can support us on Patreon, which offers a free trial, as I mentioned at the top of the show. All kinds of other ways to check it all out. Just look in the show notes or you can go to politicsguides.com slash support. And whether you're a supporter or not, we would really appreciate it if you haven't already, if you could subscribe rate and review us on whatever podcast app you use, as well as spread the word on social media. 
If you want to get in touch with us, there's mail at politicsguys.com, our email address. We're also on that Discord channel, as I mentioned, for supporters, as well as Facebook and X, and you will find links to them in the show notes. And finally, as always, a very special thanks to our fantastic executive producers. They are Bruce Johnson, Wilma Moreno, Daniel Toe, Ryan Beasley, and Don Oglesby. We'll be back with a new episode for you next week. We hope you'll join us.